Okay, we are live. I'd like to uh, welcome Tall Bloke here. I don't know how to pronounce your last name uh, correctly. I'm going to let you do that. But I'm super happy to have you here. I know you've been a longtime climate skeptic, and I've been a, a reader of your stuff for many years. So it's a great, uh, great for me to actually see you over Zoom. Well, Tom, thanks for inviting me on onto your podcast, and uh, likewise, it's it's great to see you face to face after all these years that have been following each other. And you know, I've lo I've loved following your your dry wit and humor. Oh, uh, thank you. The way, the way that you conduct your, yourself on on Twitter, particularly, I think okay. is great. You know, and and uh, so I'm I'm pleased to be here. It's great to great to talk. It's such a huge subject. And uh, I mean, I should start off by saying a little bit about myself for yes. viewers who don't know me. Uh, so yeah, known as tall bloke on the internet because I'm six foot eight. Uh, my my name is Roger Tattersall, and I live uh, in northern northern England, um, just sort of out on the edge of the countryside, on the outer edge of of one of the bigger cities in northern England. Yeah, and uh, I I love it here because I I can hop on a train that's about ten minutes walk away, and within fifteen minutes I can either be in the city centre. Uh, or 15 minutes the other way, I, I'm in the, the gateway of the beautiful Yorkshire Dales, which is a, a hilly area of great natural beauty where I, I love to go walking, backpacking in my spare time, camping out in, in nature and uh, and just enjoying that kind of thing. So is that area, is that from all creatures, great and small? Is that where that was? That's that's right. That's right. Oh, well, the the yeah. Yorkshire Dales. Yeah. Yeah. We love those books. We read them and talked about them. Those, uh, I wanted to visit that sometime. It must be great to, uh, to see it in person. Tom, come, come on over. Yeah, come on I would over. Love to. I, can, I, I will I'll be, be my pleasure to uh, take right. you on a tour, take you on a tour of the, uh, of the region, yeah. uh, show you how beautiful my, my home County of Yorkshire is. I would love to do that. Fantastic. So yeah, I'm, I'm been a long time, had a long-term interest in science, as you mentioned. Uh, I started out when I left school at the age of 16. I, I went into engineering and I did day release to college and, and gained some higher national qualifications as a production engineer. Yeah. Um, a few years later, I, I, uh, I suffered a back injury at work and I had to go uh, leave, leave the work I was doing because I'd been doing heavy, heavy machining work in the engineering industry. I, I actually machined some of the core components of the the CERN particle accelerator all those years ago. Really? And uh, so it's quite interesting stuff. But uh, so I, I thought, well, now's my chance to go to university and, and uh, broaden out my outlook, learn something more. So um, I, I intended to do philosophy and computing, uh, but, the, but the computing uh, department guy who was interviewing me, who was a professor of statistics, he said to me, uh, I said, oh, I see you don't have an A-level in maths. I said, no, I left school at 16. I went in engineering. I got my higher national qualification in, in maths, which is in advance of A-level A -level standard. And he, he said to me, he said, uh, well, he said, we once had a polytechnic student here a few years ago, but he left after a few weeks. Oh. And there was this kind of silence. And I, and I said to him, I said, so you're, you're a professor of statistics and you're basing your judgment of polytechnic students on a sample of work. That's, that's and, funny. and so, yeah, that was the end of that interview. So I ended up doing, instead, I ended up doing a joint honors degree in philosophy and the history and philosophy of science. And it's the most interesting course I ever did. And I'll never be bored again. I've, I've got a lifetime of things to think about through doing that. I learned about the history of medicine. I learned about how scientific theories are evaluated. Mm -hmm. uh, I learned, you know, the history of the development of European science through 
from from the time of the the Greeks uh, right right through to to um, through through the sort of Enlightenment period uh, and up and up to the up to the present day. And it it was a real eye opener for me because what I realised was that most scientists don't get that broad based grounding in understanding yeah. their own their own field, you know, science as a whole. They they tend to fairly quickly become specialized. Yes. Uh, they're, they're led into, you know, quite narrow areas of, of research interest. And so they kind of don't see the wood for the trees in a lot of ways. And that's something that we can discuss during this, yeah. this, uh, this hour, because it, it's very important to realize that, uh, a lot of, a lot of scientists don't actually understand what science is all about mm -hmm. and how it should be conducted and, uh, and how, how you get the best results from doing science. And, uh, and this is, this is of crucial importance to our society as science has become so in, important in underpinning policy decisions yes. and the way that we use knowledge to, to shape society and, and the world that, that we're creating for the future. So that's, that's a sort of broad, broad kind of introduction to, to me and what I'm, you know, I could go on just to say a little bit more about yeah. you know, where, where I've been and what I've done. Let's do that. Uh, in relation to the climate debate. And, yeah. and that is that, that I finished the last year of my degree was in 1988, which of course was the year that Jim Hansen oh, yeah. gave his testimony to, yeah. to Congress, uh, on, on that famous hot summer's day when, uh, when his sidekick, Tim Worth had, had left the windows open so the aircon wouldn't be effective and yeah. the place was roasting and everybody was dripping in sweat. And, Jim Hansen was telling everybody what a big problem carbon dioxide emissions were going to be. And, uh, and that kind of seemed to be a kind of real start point of where the, the, the popular publicly aware climate debate got going. And, and I was there at the start and, and really? I look, I, you know, I kind of looked into the claims he was making and, and thought, Hmm, you know, there's, there's quite a lot to unpack here. And obviously when you've done a degree in the history and philosophy of science, you taught how to go to the sources, download the data, you know, verify things for yourself, look at the theory that's, that's being, um, generated and, and make assessments of, of what you think the quality of the data is, how much uncertainty there is in, in the formation, you know, the way the theory is put together and all these things. And, and at that time. I thought, mm, well, it all, it all looks a bit uncertain to me, but it's not having any great impact on society at, at the moment. Uh, but fast forward on 10 years and it started having a big impact on society. And if you fast forward to now, we're absolutely in a, in a phase where government policy, as it applies to, you know, cutting emissions threatens, uh, the, the very economies that, that the world you know, depends on for the well-being of uh, billions of people, all of us. And, and so this has now become a, a crucial debate and one that's been sadly, uh, biased and contained and demarcated by, uh, people who think that you should only be hearing one side of the argument. And, and this, this is, this is a, a huge danger to us all. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not yeah. the way that science was ever designed to proceed. Science was always designed to proceed on the idea that you put up a hypothesis and then other people try to find counter evidence to show that the hypothesis is wrong, mm. uh, and, and then come up with better hypotheses and so on and, and develop forward from through that kind of 
dialectical process um, to to get a better handle on how the world works and uh, and and what knowledge we can apply to uh, to, to the way that we run the world, uh, the way uh, that we run the human world, and uh, and this this has been kind of stalled by uh, this um, quasi-religious mm -hmm. faith in the science capital capital letters mm -hmm. where whereby uh, people who are skeptical of of the theories are um, censored uh, shut out suppressed uh, they don't get any funding for research mm -hmm. and and all these all these sort of biasing um, situations that that prevent proper scientific progress so you know we we have a huge amount to cover in in this in this discussion that we're going to have together today, but but I just you know wanted to lay out that to start with, just just to kind of widen the whole thing out beyond discussion of of the finer points of of what carbon dioxide does and doesn't do in the atmosphere okay. and and these and these kind of specific issues. Okay, so, so over over to you. Let lead me on. So I, I am very interested that you were a climate skeptic back in 1988. So I was just doing the math in my head. I think you've been a skeptic for about twice as long as I've been a skeptic. And for all that time up to like 2005, I was a casual believer that I just thought, oh, the scientists, they say it's uh, dangerously warming. They, they must be right. And like I've said, I didn't do any climate marching or anything, but I just, at that time I was naive and I thought the scientists, uh, they know more than we do, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm curious, though, uh, what it was like to be a skeptic in the 1980s in terms of there was no Twitter around and how did you talk to other climate skeptics? And I actually wanted to go back even before that uh, during, I don't know if you were uh, during the global cooling scare, if you were thinking about that or uh, I don't know how old you would have been then, but uh, I can remember it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the the global cooling scare, I mean, I was I was fairly young at the time, but I was out and about, you know, okay. because I was I was a. Uh, I've always been a, a keen hill walker and backpacker, right from my early teenage years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I was 13, myself and another 13 year old friend, we, we did a 270 mile walk up the, up the, the backbone of England at the, the Pennine Hills, okay. uh, on, on a long distance walk called the Pennine way. And, uh, you know, so, and that was in the hot summer of, of 77 and, and the previous summer 76 had been even hotter. They were, there were remarkably warm, dry summers in, in the UK. And, uh, and so that was interesting, but also in the 1970s, there were some really severe winters and, and a lot of colder weather too. So it's kind of anecdotal. It, it's hard to, uh, draw any firm conclusions at, at this kind of distance in time and, yeah. and how your perception changes from when you're a very young person to when you're a more mature person. But, but, um, but I do remember you know, the snow being on the ground for, for weeks at a time mm -hmm. in Northern England, when I was walking to school as a, a seven, eight year old. Um, so that would have been in about 71, 72. Okay. And, and this, uh, this, this was around that time that, that, uh, there was a lot of really serious concern, um, including from the CIA in, in America, they commissioned a big report yeah. on that. Uh -huh. And uh, they, they were very interested in what the possible effects were going to be on crop production. Mm -hmm whether this might cause civil unrest and, and, uh, you know, so they were obviously taking the issue seriously. There are hundreds and hundreds of articles at the time mm -hmm. talking about this big drop in temperature. I remember um, that. 
I'm sorry. I remember that being on the farm. I was uh, growing up on a farm in the seventies and those winters in Minnesota, they were very cold. I think our old farm thermometer said 40 below multiple times. And we wow. had to work hard to keep the pipes from freezing. Uh, the cattle were indoors and the water pipes uh, wanted to freeze because it was really cold in those winters. And, uh, I thought that there were anecdotes about there was some snowstorm in Cleveland where there were, uh, they were driving snowmobiles past the, uh, chimneys of houses that there was just enormous amounts of snow, unbelievable. And I think that fed into the whole global cooling scare, but that, uh, that went away, as you said. Yeah. 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 It was a real thing though. And, yes. and as, as, as we found out recently, and this is an interesting bit of science just to go into now for you, for your listeners to get hold of, if they, if they look at the moment at my blog over at, uh, tallbloke.wordpress.com, um, tall blokes talk shop, as I call it, okay. uh, they'll find that pinned at the top of the blog, uh, uh, at the moment is, um, uh, I'd, I'd say it's, it's almost a scientific paper. It's kind of there for open peer review. Uh, it's been written by Ned Nikolov and Carl Zeller, and it's about a data set, which, um, was published last year, uh, for solar surface radiation. So this is different to how much sunlight arrives at the top of the atmosphere, which is what the climate scientists always say is pretty constant and doesn't vary much, doesn't vary enough to, to be climatically important. But this data set is taking all the, all the readings and measurements that have been done over the years, um, and creating a spatial grid and, and weighting those readings to get a better idea of what was happening globally over land, not over the ocean, because they, they okay. didn't have these measurement stations on the ocean, but um, but over land, the amount of salt, uh, sunlight actually reaching the, the ground, actually reaching the earth's surface. And it's a very interesting result because what it shows is that there was a very profound and big drop of around eight watts per square meter from about 1962 to about 1974. Hmm. Now that's, that's a really big figure. You know, when you compare it to, uh, the, the, the heating power of that's ascribed to carbon dioxide, mm. um, you know, they're, they're talking about, I think 3.7 yeah. watts per doubling of, of carbon dioxide, but this is an eight watts per square meter drop in, in the amount of solar radiation reaching the earth's surface. And, you know, if you work out the sensitivity, not of the earth, uh, earth's climate system to carbon dioxide, which has been, we believe probably overestimated and it's, mm. it's gradually come down over yes. the years and, and they, they keep saying, oh, maybe it's not quite as much as we thought, but, mm -hmm. but they still say it's, it's probably in the region of, uh, two centigrade for a doubling of carbon dioxide. Uh, but if you look at the climate sensitivities of, of other climate factors, such as, uh, the, the shortwave radiation from the sun that reaches the ground, uh, you find that, that that could have caused a drop of um, several degrees, uh, putatively. Now this, this would likely be ameliorated by the massive, uh, heat capacity of the ocean that, that when the earth started getting colder, then you would get more energy coming back out of the ocean because you'd have a greater differential, uh, for okay. conduction between, between the, the, the surface of the ocean and the air, uh, and okay. the air only has as much heat capacity. The entire atmosphere only has as much heat capacity as the top two meters of the ocean. Okay. The ocean's kilometers deep. Okay. So, so you, you can appreciate that there's an awful lot of energy stored in the ocean. And when it, when it gets the chance to come back out, it can soften the, the changes that you otherwise might expect from a, a change in a variable, such as this okay. uh, solar, solar surface radiation variable.
Um, but of course, the question to be asking ourselves about this variable is, well, what caused the amount of sun reaching the surface to change? And the, and the answer is cloud albedo. So what we're saying is that, that the, um, the amount of cloud covering the earth increased probably by, you know, several percent during that period through the sixties into the seventies. Okay. Interestingly, from, from the end of the eighties, uh, the amount of clouds started falling again. And, and, uh, and that's really what caused the, the warming since then, uh, is not an increase in carbon dioxide, but a reduction in cloud albedo. And the, the climate scientists know this, but they don't ever tell the public about that because it, it makes the story too complicated. You know, they want to, they want to say, oh, you know, more CO2 creates this blanket that traps heat and that makes the earth warmer. Uh, and give us this really simplistic sort of idea of, of how the greenhouse effect works, as they mm -hmm. call it. Um, but in fact, they, they know as well as we do that, that, um, that it was additional solar radiation getting to the surface that actually caused most of the warming. Uh, but they try to explain it away by saying, oh, well, that, that, that's just a feedback to the, to the increase in temperature caused by the increase in carbon dioxide. <laughs> Now we've no particularly good reason to believe them about this. It's an ad hoc hypothesis that's mm -hmm. been added on to yeah. their, their theory. And as, as a historian and philosopher of science, you know, the, the history of science is littered with people making, making stuff up as they go along to try and explain, you know, new discoveries or things that, that have come to light that, mm -hmm. that seem to refute their original hypothesis. But unfortunately, we now live in an age where it's so difficult to, to get this kind of stuff published mm -hmm. that they can they can get away with with still putting out the same old story of that carbon dioxide is a blanket trapping the heat and uh, and that we're increasing carbon dioxide and that's what's making things hotter. So you know there is there is a, a lot of debate to be had around newer data which has come to light or been recorded since the the science was settled by the IPCC back in the early 2000s. So uh, this paper on your blog, is that related to the work of Nir Shaviv when he's talking about the cosmic rays changing the cloudiness of the earth? Is that well, sound it, similar it, to me? Yeah, it, it could be. Uh, it's, it's kind of independent of that question of what causes the okay. change in the cloud cover. Okay. Uh, this, this is just a, an empirical analysis okay. of the data. Yes. But, um, but certainly in the longer term, when you, when you look at in what we believe in the right way of looking at the data, taking into account the massive heat capacity of the ocean and, and the amount of, um, change in the solar variation, it seems likely that there is a solar effect on cloud cover. So when the sun gets stronger, uh, it chases away more of those cosmic rays that, that Nir Shaviv's talking about yes. that get into the inner solar system and into our atmosphere and seed the clouds. Um, and so you get less cloud and, and also confirming that would be, you know, quite long-term, uh, reconstructions of solar activity and longer-term proxy reconstructions of temperature, which show that there is, you know, a long-term relationship between, um, the, the sun's activity and the, the surface temperature on, on earth. So, you know, it's not so easy to tie down at the sort of interannual or decadal scale 
but you can see looking at longer term data sets. Yeah, there is, you can see that there is a relationship between the sun and, and our climate. And that's, and that's probably amplified by the sun's effect on cloud cover. Uh, but it's not a sort of simple, immediate one-to-one -one relationship. There are obviously complex things going on that need more, as always, more research needed. But, but uh, you know, we, we can get a, a sense that um, in the past, it's quite clear that the sun had uh, a strong effect on climatic variation. And there's no reason to suppose that the sun went on holiday and stopped affecting climatic variation just because we started putting out a bit more carbon dioxide after the second world war. So, you know, this, this is getting into the skeptical side of the argument mm. and, and saying, Hey, let's look at natural variation because all the variation we've seen so far is within natural limits after yes. all. So we shouldn't be presupposing as the IPCC has that there's a human fingerprint on, uh, on climate change and global warming. Okay. All right. Um, do you have any sense at all? It's probably too early to ask this about what you think is going to happen in the next 20 to 40 years on earth. Do you have any predictions at all, or is it so complicated that nobody knows? Well, we, over at the talk shop, we have had a stab at making a couple of predictions okay. about solar variation. And, and I produced a semi-empirical model back in 2011, I think, um, predicting what, if we're right about what we're predicting for solar variation what effect that might have on, on sea surface temperatures and therefore global surface temperatures okay. uh, out to 2050. So we've got a solar prediction out to 2100, which says, you know, correctly that the last cycle and this cycle are going to be quite low. Okay. Then there'll, then there'll be probably be a bit of a recovery through the middle of the century, but not back up to the kind of levels of, of solar uh, activity that we saw towards the end of, of the last century. And then as we get out towards 2100, it's, it's still looking, you know, very low. Solar activity is still looking low compared to the, the so-called grand maximum of, of mm. the, uh, of the 19, uh, 1940s to, to 2003. Okay. So, you know, that's the solar prediction. And then the effect that has on my semi-empirical model is that we, I think might see a reduction in global surface temperature, probably not more than about. 0.2.5 centigrade okay between now and around 2050 okay uh, so so not a big deal either way you know i'm, I'm not going to lose sleep if it turns out i was wrong mm -hmm. because half, half a degree is barely measurable and really has very little effect on on uh, the earth and its uh, population right. of 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 animal species including ourselves <laughs> you know human beings are quite capable of living uh, anywhere uh, temperatures anywhere between minus 40 and plus 40. Mm -hmm all over the world from, from the equator to the poles. And, uh, and so, and, and, and many other species are able to migrate and, and they'll choose where, where to go, where they, where they feel that the climate's temperate for, for them and their, what, uh, the way they, they live. So I think that the earth and its creatures are a lot more resilient and mm -hmm. able to cope with change than, yeah. than the kind of horror stories that, mm -hmm. that are painted by the, by the more alarmist, uh, part of the the, uh, the, the, the warm, the, the warm part of, of the debate. So you don't think that's going to just be a linear rise from here to 2100. We're going to get, see another two or three centigrade uh, warming. For, I don't think we are in the next 80 years, but no, I don't think so. I mean, I, if you look at the long term, cause another thing that I'm very interested in is that you've probably spotted 
over the years is that I'm very interested in cyclicities in, in climatic variation, uh, for, for reasons that we might go into later on in, in this, in this chat, but for now, you know, we'll, we'll just say, you know, that there have been identified some quite long-term natural cyclicities in climatic variables. Uh, and one of those is, uh, what's called the Bray cycle. It's about two and a half thousand years in okay. length. And, and it last, it last reached a low point sort of in, in the depths of the little ice age, you know, kind of in the, the early 1700s. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so for the next 12, 1200 years or so after that low point, we might expect things to, to gently warm up, uh, you know, with some ups and downs and excursions along the way caused by other shorter term, uh, cyclicities in, in climatic variables, but, but you know, that's the, the big long-term picture, if you like. So it wouldn't shock me and surprise me if things kind of got warmer again after this kind of low, uh, solar activity period that we're going through, uh, that, that if things cooled down to 2050, as I predict, they might, and that then they started warming up again for, for several hundred years more may well be the case. We, we don't know. We can't see that far ahead. Anybody who says that they've, mm -hmm. that they've got a solid prediction at that kind of distance, I think is deluding themselves and, and anybody who thinks that they should listen to them, but, uh, okay. Uh, I have a question here. If you start at the depths of the little ice age and go back in time, how far back do you have to go until it gets that cold again? I mean, it was, it was really cold on a, what a millennial basis or it, it's possible that it, that it wasn't that, that that's the coldest it's been in the, in the Holocene. We don't know yeah. for sure, but what we do know is, is that, um, the temperature in the warm periods was uh, quite a lot higher way back in, in the bronze age, you know, sort of 8,000 years ago. Um, and it was warmer in the, in the, during the, uh, Roman climatic optimum 2000 years ago, and it was warmer in the medieval warm period, uh, okay. sort of 800 to a thousand years ago. And, and so what we're seeing, what we're seeing is what we've seen from our proxy variables telling us about climate from previous interglacial periods, you know, that. We get these periods of glaciation and, and intergla interglacial periods coming rolling round about every 100,000 years. And what tends to happen is when, when it comes out of glaciation, the temperature goes shooting up, it reaches uh, a maximum, and then it tails off and then eventually starts to drop more steeply into the next glacial period. So it's quite likely that the Little Ice Age was as cold as it's been you know, since, since the previous deglaciation, 120,000 years ago. Okay. I just saw something about how uh, possibly cooling could advance so quickly that uh, a local area would go from oak trees to tundra in 100 years. Have you heard something about that? Uh, that seems pretty fast to me, but I don't know. Yeah. I, well, I, I suppose that there was a period of glacially advanced during the little ice age in, in the, in central Europe, you know, so okay. in, in, in Austria, Switzerland, in those mountainous regions. And some of those glaciers grew, uh, and advanced pretty rapidly and actually, you know, raised entire villages to the yeah. ground. Uh, so, so it, it shows you that, you know, yes, everybody's worried about glacial retreat at the moment. Um, but glaciers can advance as well as retreat and have done in, in the relatively recent past, you know, certainly in, in the time of recorded well and accurately recorded history over the last few hundred years. So, you know, we should expect, mm. we should expect variation. How quickly 
um, the onset of glacial, you know, a serious glaciation, as in, you know, if we really were to start dropping into the next mm -hmm. 80,000 years of, of glacial period, um, I don't think anybody's got a, got a definite answer to that. And, and, um, I'm always wary of, uh, ideas that involve things called tipping points. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because. I think people like to, to come up with dramatic and, and, uh, powerful narratives, partly to draw attention to themselves and yes. get more attention paid to their ideas. Um, and, and partly because for some reason, human beings have this kind of, uh, inbuilt worries about apocalyptic events mm -hmm. happening, the possibility of them and, and predicting them and, and fearing them. Um, because after all. You know, we live it. We live in a world that, that's ever changing. Climate has actually been remarkably stable and yes. benign yeah. mm -hmm. over, you know, for as long as we've been measuring it, really, since the middle of the eighteen fifties, uh, compared to what it has been in in the deeper past. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we know that there have been things like great floods and inundations uh, that wiped out, you know, civilizations, put put their cities underwater off the coast of India and other places in the past. And so humans rightly, you know, fear, um, sudden cataclysmic natural changes. But a lot of times you find that these natural changes were caused by things like undersea earthquakes oh, okay. or huge volcanic eruptions. And, and while they're, you know, while they can be very devastating for quite large populations in a regional part of, of, uh, the planet. We're not talking about the, the longer and slower climatic changes, such as uh, the descent in, into the next glaciation. So I, I tend to tend to be a little bit wary of, of, uh, apocalyptic ideas about how, how fast things could turn to, uh, mm -hmm. to ice, you know, ice, icy windblown tundra mm -hmm. from, um, from the, from the green and pleasant land that we enjoy in the temperate parts of the earth today. Okay. Do you know something about how around the year 536 or so the earth went dark? I just heard some mention of that. I don't know if that was a volcanic thing. I hadn't heard about that till last week or so. Somebody mentioned it on a, a podcast. That, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I don't know much about it, yeah. honestly. So not, not really my area of study, but I suspect yeah. it probably quite probably was linked to some, some serious, uh, volcanic activity. Yeah. So if, it, if it turned the sky dark, then, then mm -hmm. you might expect yeah. that, mm -hmm. uh, because volcanoes, when they, when they put out stuff that goes right up into the stratosphere that and gets spread around the whole planet. And, mm -hmm. and we had that thing in, uh, I think in the early 1800s known as the year without summer that yes. yeah. followed a major volcanic eruption as well. Okay. So, you know, I think, I think that's probably the answer to that, but it's worth noting that, um, some of the biggest volcanic eruptions have happened when the sun has been relatively inaccurate in inactive. Okay. So. So, you know, early 1900s, there were a couple of very low solar cycles, a couple of quite big volcanoes. Oh, uh, okay. You know, the 1970s, okay. It was 1983 before we got the, the, the big one, El Chichon let go that, that they reckon caused about a half degree drop in, in the earth's surface temperature for a couple of years. Uh, and it's worth noting while we're talking about volcanoes, if you don't mind me just digressing a minute, no, go for it. uh, that, that in, in the. In the, uh, CMIP five climate model predictions for how the temperature is going to go in the future, they don't include any volcanic eruptions. 
And they say, oh, well, that's because we don't know exactly when they're going to happen. They're black swan events, you know, so we can't include those. But you'd have thought that, mm -hmm. <laughs> that since they, in the, in the recent temperature record, they can see that big volcanic events cause a, a drop in the Earth's temperature mm. and, and then a slow recovery again, that they might introduce some sort of average figure or mm. some, some idea of how much that might prevent the, the temperature racing, right. racing away several degrees over the next 70 or 80 years. But that, that doesn't fit their narrative, does it? So we're, we're not going to see that, unfortunately. Interesting. Uh, have you looked into Yellowstone at all? Uh, the possibility of Yellowstone to have a super eruption there? I'm just curious. I mean, I, I heard about that in a documentary, oh, many years ago. I think there was a documentary shown in the UK about uh, the caldera, the possibility that it could blow and, and that the evidence that it had blown in the past um, showed that there, there was, you know, in, incredible uh, ecological fallout from, from that. And it probably killed Mm. Uh, a large percentage of the human beings that lived on the, the continent of North America oh. at that time. Mm. And, and, uh, so these, these kind of things put, put, um, a degree of warming over a century or so into, right. into perspective, mm. don't they, you know, they do. Yeah. these kind of cataclysms could over, overtake, uh, overtake us. And, um, and so, you know, I, I, again, I, I, I think that the, the whole question about climate change they have to make it seem apocalyptic to try and get people to pay attention to it. Because if you say, oh, well, it's warming up a degree over a hundred years, then most people shrug their shoulders and carry on with their lives. Don't right. they? They're not going to be convinced that they have to um, rush to climate action and accept a radically different lifestyle Absolutely. On, on the basis of such a mild and slow warming mm -hmm. or change in temperature of the planet. And, uh, and so. You know, this again, all plays into the way that the media works because the media has to, has to come up with exciting stories in order to get the views or make the sales of, of, uh, printed papers and journals and, mm -hmm. and, uh, magazines. And so they, they have a, uh, a vested interest in amping up, uh, the stories told by climate scientists. And so we've got this kind of unholy, uh, alliance of, of the media um, the, 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 the scientists who are coming up with these apocalyptic stories and the politicians who think, Hey, we can make use of this to, uh, get a load more tax money out of the population. So, you know, we shouldn't be surprised when these things kind of, kind of happen, but whereas there used to be some kind of checks and balances in all of this, where, where you'd have dissenting sections of the media, uh, dissenting politicians, we seem to be now into an era where, uh, Groupthink has become so mm -hmm. yeah. uh, entrenched, and and the 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 pressure, the peer pressure to conform to the current narrative is so strong. You know that people will lose their jobs if they speak out against yeah. it, or they'll they'll have their funding cut and they'll be cast out into the outer darkness from academic institutions. Um, so it's very hard to conduct uh, dispassionately done, unbiased, carefully researched science in such an atmosphere and and this this is part of the problem i believe and, and why the part the why the debate has become so polarized and bitter so don't you think that uh, when the earth does fail to warm as advertised that when people do talk about it they're going to point fingers at each other the media is going to say hey the scientists told us it was going to be bad and we just reported it and then the scientists are going to say hey the media hyped it we never said it was going to be that bad i think we're going to see that i don't know do you, do you know do you know tom <clears throat> I, I think that's that's probably the best scenario uh 
but I think I, I honestly, sometimes in my gloomier moments, I think, I think that, um, the, the people involved in, in this, uh, would be so, uh, keen to prevent being proved wrong. They, they'd rather start a nuclear war, oh. uh, you know, if it was getting colder, they'd start a nuclear war and say, oh, it's the nuclear winter that's made the earth oh. cold. Okay. Uh, not, not, you know, we're, we're not wrong about our CO2 global warming theory. And, uh, it's because you think about the massive loss of face for all the politicians, all the science institutions, mm. all of it, it's just become so huge now that what they've got invested in this and the, the, the drastic nature of the changes that are being enforced on, on po entire populations to, to fit in with their ideas that they, they are mortally afraid of being proved wrong. Um, mm -hmm. I think famously there was one of the climate gay emails least where one, one of the scientists said, what if it all just turns out to be a multi-decadal oscillation? So what, what are they going to do? Well, the public, gonna, they're, they're probably going to lynch us. Yes. And, uh, you know, and, and that, that kind of sums up the, the kind of insecurity that these scientists have about their own, because they know damn well how uncertain their ideas and theories are. And how uncertain a lot of the data is, uh, you know, prior to the satellite age when we started getting more accurate data, that they they are painfully aware that their story has been oversold by the politicians, oversold by the media, and yet they stay silent about it. And that's, to my way of thinking, uh, unethical in terms of science ethics. It's unethical to allow um, ideas to be blown out of proportion when they actually know better themselves and were saying so between each other in private, but, uh, but not saying so in public. I'm hearing that quite a bit now, all of a sudden in back channels or people are telling me that uh, they know climate scientists or they are climate scientists and they're saying, oh, what's being said behind closed doors is not at all what's being said in public. I guess we saw that in the climate gate emails too, but uh, what percent of the climate scientists do you think actually have bought into it and they really think that they're saving the world? There's a certain percentage of them that actually believe it. I think Catherine Hayhoe believes it, but yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't think it's a very big number of scientists. I yeah. mean, probably if you narrow yeah. down to, yeah. to the specialized field of, of climate science yeah, and, and as it were, the, the coattailing, uh, study areas like, you know, climate impacts and, um, who, who, who knows what equality and diversity in climate studies and all, all yeah. of these sort of add, add on sort of sociological, uh, type scientific areas, uh, which, which kind of hang on the coattails of, of the whole, uh, the whole climate scare that, that they, that they will, uh, so it's very hard to tell whether they really believe the hype that they themselves put out there through their press releases to the media from their institutions. Uh, there's probably a lot of them think, Hey, I'm just making a really nice salary here. I'm going to get through my career. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I'll retire. And, and we noticed, you know, over the previous decade, quite a number of climate scientists, when they finally retired, yes. then they came out and said, actually, I think it's all been overblown. I think they may have, may have made some fundamental errors yes. the way that they've done the science uh, and so on. And, and those voices, obviously, we tried to amplify through, through, um, through the sort of the, 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 the Twitter sphere and, and the, the climate skeptic blogosphere. Mm -hmm. uh, because they were silenced and ignored by the yes. mainstream media mm -hmm. and, and everybody else. So 
um, it's a very uneven fight. It's a sort of David and Goliath fight we're in, isn't it? You know, it is. Yeah. The, the climate industrial complex has has the whole of the uh, the mainstream media on its side, all the politicians, you know, the, the scientists who uh, and the administrators who run the institutions uh, uh, and uh, are fed the funding streams on condition that you know the right kind of message comes back from the coalface, you know, in in these academic institutions that confirm. What the, what the politicians want to hear and this is why and this is how we end up with with um evidence uh policy-based evidence rather than evidence-based yes. policy mm-hmm. as the saying goes so you know this this is a, a serious concern because of the direction that it's leading science itself into disrepute yeah this is a real big hobby horse of mine which i'll come on to after i've had a chance let you have a chance to say a bit more um, one thing I wanted to mention about uh, what's going to happen in 2050 on Twitter, people were talking about how the weather is not going to get worse. And by 2050, still no apocalypse. And what they're going to say is that, hey, it was all that money we spent on this, uh, on <laughs> climate change. It would have been really bad, but uh, it stayed the same because of all the heroic work we did. I think we will hear that quite a bit, too. I, I think we will. I mean, it'd be very easy to disprove, you know, because the carbon dioxide yeah, carries yeah. on increasing. Yeah. Uh, then unless... But of course, you've got to remember that that is, that is measured at uh, only a very few sites around the world. And it's, yeah. it's measured using what they call reference gases to compare yeah. the current concentration to what the concentration is in, in this sort of special bottle that's been specially prepared with uh, apparently, you know, a specific number of parts per million of carbon dioxide. Okay. Now, now just suppose, just, just think about the, the, uh, kind of incentive there would be mm-hmm. to fudge the figures to to suit the narrative again so so you know this is again going back to my training uh you have to be careful when you're dealing with data because you need yes. to know something about who's who's collating that data who's theorizing about that data if they're the same bunch of people who are collecting curating and theorizing about the data then that's a big red flag because mm-hmm. uh, obviously there's a strong incentive on the part of the people who've come up with the theory to perhaps just, oh, the data just needs adjusting a little bit, you know, so, so that it fits their theory better. And if you've got all of the control of all those three things, you know, the curation, mm-hmm. the obtaining of the data, the curation of the data, and the theorizing about the data going on in, in one big institution, then there's far more danger that, that some, something like that could happen. And it's just human nature. You know, I mean, I'm not being particularly mean to, to climate scientists here. This kind of thing goes on all over the world, everywhere, all the time. It's human nature. And if you look at more mature disciplines, such as, say, civil engineering, mm-hmm. then uh, the data is collected by one organization. It's looked after and curated by another. Mm-hmm. And the people who built the bridge, the people who built the bridge, don't get to change the data, you know, because if yeah. the bridge collapses, then there's got to be a chain of, a chain of cust- you know, custody mm-hmm. on the evidence that can say who, who's at fault, you know, if, if something like that happens. Oh, um, well, I wanted to make a point about CO2. What do you think about these CO2 measurements uh, prior to 1950? There's all sorts of these chemical measurements, uh, maybe even in the 1800s that were 430 ppm or more. And they just threw those out, I guess. I don't know why they threw those out. I have that question. And uh, then going back to the ice cores, and we're supposed to believe that CO2 was stable for maybe hundreds of thousands of years or a long period based on how much CO2 is in these ancient ice bubbles. 
I'm not believing that one either, but I uh, wanted to know your take on that one. Perfect. Yeah, well, you know, it, I think the guy was called George Ernst Beck, uh, who collated all these old um, CO2 measurements that had been taken around. And, and obviously, you, you can think that there might be quite a lot of experimental error involved. Again, not, for all of those readings, you didn't have full information maybe about where they were taken, what time of day they were taken at. Um, you know, what the sort of environment was that they were taking it. And so you're obviously going to have a bigger spread of uncertainty on that data. But even when you throw out the outliers, they show that CO2 was a lot more variable um, and variable in tune with um, temperature variation um, in, in the past than, than this record that's been created from, hmm. from this splicing together of ice core data yeah. With, with modern instrumental measurements uh, taken from Mauna Loa and elsewhere after 1958. Okay. Uh, and my, my view on the ice cores is, is that due to diffusion of, yeah. of the gas through the ice, that's going to act like a, a smoothing, uh, which will take out the peaks and the troughs in, in changes in CO2 in the past. Now, interestingly, there's another way of looking at this, which is to look at um, fossilized leaves. Okay. Because le leaves have things called stomata mm -hmm. on them, which are like little pores into which CO2 can, can get. And the plants need that because CO2 is plant food. You know, it's what they create. It's what mm. you, through the process of photosynthesis, it's what they create the sugars with that enable the plants to grow. So, so those, um, those stomata, the number of them, you know, sort of the number per square centimeter. Uh, in different species of trees is different. But when you look at the same species over a long time, you can see that number of stomata varying okay. uh, in proportion in very similar way to the way that the uh, information collated by George Ernst Beck uh, look, has variation okay. on the multi-decadal scale mm -hmm. and, and also, you know, much higher peaks in the past. So it does seem likely to me, I mean, that the, the Dutch guy whose name temporarily escapes me, the scientist, what's his name now? It might come back to me while we're talking, but he, he presented this and they immediately buried it, you know, and they said, oh no, 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 that, that can't. So, so again, it didn't fit the narrative. It was sho shoved under the carpet. Um, but it's another line of evidence, which shows that CO2 was a lot more variable in the past than the record, which is used by the IPCC for their narrative shows. Okay. So this whole thing again about the ice cores, I'm obsessed by it, that the story is that we have this air bubble that's 700,000 years old, and it has exactly the same proportions of CO2 in it now as it did on day one. That's the story that we're supposed to believe, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, past yeah. It, is it is preposterous. And, um, and, and I think, you know, it, we can safely discount it. And, and, yeah. and it's, it's still used, as you know, to to present the, arg the overall argument that the IPCC is presenting, that, that the climate was very stable and, and yeah. didn't change much in, in the past, and it's, now it's warming rapidly due to, to our activities. Um, uh -huh. But, you know, if you're going to splice together two data sets, you cannot, as, just like with the hide the decline issue with, with the tree rings mm -hmm. being, being spliced onto the modern temperature records, you know, it's a totally invalid way of doing science. It's, it is, let's call it what it is. Let, let's not mince our words. It's scientific fraud. Talk. Yes. Mm -hmm. Scientific it is. fraud. It is. And, and this is one of the things we're up against is, is this 
kind of state-sanctioned scientific fraud that we're being beaten over the head with. And uh, it's, 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 it's an absolute blot and a stain on the reputation of, 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 of science. Are you familiar with this XKCD cartoon? It's a very long cartoon showing exactly that uh, global temperatures were very, very stable for a long time period. And Gavin Schmidt said he really liked that cartoon because it showed how stable everything was until humans arrived. But then I think it was based on the Marco data and there was some deal there where it didn't show any variation at all on uh, like a <laughs> 300 year time scale. So it, <laughs> I don't know how you'd even draw a graph that's six inches long that's supposed to show all the variations uh, over the last whatever, over hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, of course, the uh, the uh, vari the 30 year variability is not gonna be in there. Not that of course, of course, that's absolutely right. and and. Uh... And this is why they tend to use, you know, the Antarctic ice cores as the reference for this. Yeah. Where things are more stable mm -hmm. um, because it's the northern hemisphere, it seems, where where um, the climatic data is is more choppy, you know, and and the actual variations in temperature are, are, are more choppy, as indicated by you know the Greenland ice cores, mm -hmm. which show oh, yeah. big steep variations on on sh just as short timescales as we've seen in in the modern era. Uh, from thousands and thousands of years ago, which sort of makes you question, well, if we've seen bigger natural variations back from when before, um, you know, uh, Henry Ford started, started building big SUVs, and then, then, um, you know, what was the cause of that? You know, what caused that mm -hmm. climatic change? And of course that doesn't fit the narrative because the narrative has to be that CO2 is the climate control knob. Yes. Uh, and everything else is just oh minor feedbacks to to the variation in CO2 causing our climate to change. Uh, so, it's it's um, ludicrous. Do you agree that CO2 itself is supposed to be evenly distributed all around the globe, that it's supposed to be the same number everywhere? Uh, I've heard that. I don't know if we know that or what do you well, think? They, they say that it's a well-mixed gas. Yeah. Okay. Which, which kind of which kind of may be fairly true um up on the side of you know thousands of feet up on the side of a mountain, um, you know, in the middle of an ocean where, where everything's had a chance to mix in the air yeah. and blown around the planet. Yeah. But certainly, um, you know, if you, if you go into a, a, a cornfield that's, that's mm. growing verdantly, you know, in, in the, in the late spring, you know, under a warm sun with plenty of evaporation going on as well, then, um, you know, you're going to see lower levels of carbon dioxide where it's being rapidly absorbed by those rapidly growing plants mm -hmm. uh, and probably an elevated level of, of oxygen being emitted by those plants. So um, I'm not an expert in this field. I'm not going to oh. start speculating. Oh. But, uh, you know, it seems to me that uh, carbon dioxide is the most misunderstood, vilified, demonized trace gas in the history of the world. And we also look at a few of its good points as well as uh, worrying about what perhaps could be its, its bad points if you believe uh, the, the, the climate theory that, that's currently dominating climate science. So some of, some of the good things, sorry, go so go, well, uh, I have something uh, before you move on about uh, Will Happer has, he talks specifically about that cornfield example where he right. says on it, when it's growing, it's uh, maybe 400 parts per million at the start of the morning. He says it can drop to 200 parts per million as the corn sucks down everything that it can. So a yeah. huge variation within one morning. So this yeah. whole idea that the CO2 is, uh, it resides there for a millennia. It's, or maybe just it resides <laughs> there. If you drove your car by, it might uh, be back in, 
out of the atmosphere in an hour or something. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, I think the the e folding time is more realistically yeah. probably a few years rather, mm, rather yes. than yeah. rather than the the cent you know centennial or or even millennial kind of periods of time that the IPCC wants to convince us that our yeah. that our awful dirty emissions are going to be in the sky for. Right. Um, okay. And and again, they love to complain. They talk about carbon emissions because it makes people think of black dirt yes. and particles, yeah. soot, you know, stuff that's bad uh, in your lungs, stuff that you wouldn't want all over the outside of, of your municipal buildings downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, and they conflate carbon as in soot with carbon as in this colorless, odorless trace gas that's absolutely vital for life on Earth and, mm-hmm. and, is, and is on the whole a good thing. You know, we've seen, as NASA showed back in 2015, um, they said, you know, the Earth's got about 30% greener over the last few decades because of the increase in carbon dioxide. So the deserts are shrinking. What's not to like? Crops are more abundant. What's not to like? Um, and, and so, you know, on the counter side, if, if the other people on the other side of the climate debate say, but what about the warming that it's causing? That's dangerous. Then we should stop and ask, well, how dangerous is this warm? You know, given that 20 times more people worldwide die of cold-related mm-hmm. problems, than heat-related problems. Um, how, how, can you explain to me, please, what's so dangerous about this warmth? You know, things have got a bit warmer, and especially most of the global warming seems to have happened at nighttime. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's not causing higher temperature extremes in the day, um, but most of it's at night. If the nights are warmer, less people are going to die in the night of cold-related problems. Right, right. And, and uh, what's not to like? Well, I suppose people who think that the population of the earth is much higher than it should be, um, they, they might not like that. They might not like that. And, and uh, you know, I always, I always hesitate before getting into that part of the debate about uh, overpopulation, alleged overpopulation of the earth and what we must do to, to um, use less resources and so on and so forth, because I, I think that nature kind of controls these things itself. Um, we don't need to interfere too much with that. The Chinese had their one child policy for a few decades and then reversed it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so on, but, but that's a whole area that's becoming more worrying and troublesome as time goes on because the, the shrill shrieking from the alarmist camp is actually getting serious about this stuff. And, and the actions of our governments at the moment in reducing fertilizer production mm-hmm. and so on, yeah. uh, in what seems to be a concerted effort worldwide. It does, yeah. Is, very, is, is worrying. Now, obviously, that reduction in fertilizer consumption is partly due to the limited availability of natural gas in yes. the marketplace yeah. at the moment, mostly due to these, uh, this trouble that's going on between Europe and Russia mm-hmm. at the moment and the US and Russia. But, you know, there's also a shortage in gas supply that, that had started well before then. Yes. Because we've, we've been uh, conditioned to believe that we must leave it in the ground. We mustn't develop these resources in the first place. And so this is to what I call the politics of scarcity. And, and it's an almost an entirely bad thing dreamt up by politicians to give them more power over the populations that they're entrusted with, with governing well, and which they fail very badly to do. But, you know, hey, we're heading off into politics. Maybe let's just take a, a minute or two's break. All right, we are back. Go ahead. 
Well, Tom, we, you know, we need to talk more about the science because the, the science itself is fundamentally important. And if you don't get the science right, and then you make policy on the basis of that science, you end up with bad policy and bad outcomes for everybody, especially on something as far reaching as, as, uh, this question about climate change, whether it's human caused or not. And I think that when you, when you look at it in the round, you've got to make sure that all points of view are heard and that you have proper debate, uh, around these questions, because otherwise science cannot proceed in the way that it should, you know, so, as we said, right at the start of our chat, science proceeds by people putting up a hypothesis supported by the evidence that they found. And then other people may be saying, hang on, that's not right. You haven't included these other factors. You haven't thought about this. Uh, what about this other data that you haven't looked at? Um, we've got a better hypothesis that encompasses what you're talking about, but also these other factors and gives us a, a better picture of what's going on. Now that debate has been squashed mm-hmm. over the last 20 years. And, and this, this is a serious problem and any government that doesn't recognize that it's a serious problem. Uh, is a government that you shouldn't be voting for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do not want those kind of people in government because science has become the arbiter of truth in the world. It's supplanted religion, you know, since, since the middle of the 1800s, science has become more and more, uh, the thing that people trust to get at the truth, uh, about how the world is. And at the end of the day, if, if politicians misuse science if they deliberately bias the way that it's produced and the ideas that flow from it in order to suit a political agenda, then eventually a lot of people will stop trusting science. And where do you go from there? You know, religions no longer trusted. If science is no longer trusted either, then all you're left with is ideology. And what you end up with is conflicting ideologies and that leads to violence. And I think all of us, you know, all, all sensible individuals want to live in, in a world where there's less violence, not more. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's, it's incredibly important that our, uh, social administrators, that our elected officials, uh, that our, uh, the people who manage academic institutions recognize this basic fact that you have to have open debate in order to have valid scientific progress. And this is just incredibly important. And when I, when I started my blog back in, uh, 2009, I put out some, some fairly, you know, uh, some people say wacky ideas, you know, um, is, is the earth and its temperature affected by, um, not just the sun, but the motion of all the planets in the solar system. I kind of looked into the data there and I wasn't um, trying to, um, say this, this is correct. This, you know, you must all now listen to, to me. Mm-hmm. I was just putting ideas out there for people to comment on, think about. Great. And, and, um, so it's kind of <clears throat> cutting edge citizen science, if you like, mm-hmm. um, and questions, you know, how much does the moon and the tides uh, affect uh, climatic change over quite long periods of time, because the moon has mm-hmm. some short term cycles, like it goes around the earth once a month, mm-hmm. uh, also has, you know, sort of, uh, an eight and a half year cycle of, of 
the position of, of where it's um, perigee is, you know, okay. and, and an 18 and a half year cycle of, of, of the nodes and, and the tilt, you know, sort of relative to the Earth's equator. And this does make a difference to the way that tides operate. So I was, I was looking to see if there were any climatic signals to be found there. And this led on to uh, a whole burgeoning field. There were so many p interested people who came to talk on the blog with kept bringing other ideas and knowledge. And it's been an absolute fantastic voyage of discovery, um, looking at all these possibilities that, that has led to uh, a, couple, a few published papers here and there, ideas that, that were started out on, on Tall Blokes Talk Shop, nice. being, being taken up by uh, you know, proper professors and tenured scientists who then took some of these ideas, formalized them better, wrote papers using these ideas um, that, that have, you know, that are given proper peer review and seriously considered as a, a valid contribution to the scientific literature. So it's been very exciting to be involved in that process over the years. And it's, it's led to uh, what we think is our ability, we hope, uh, to be able to predict solar variation, which has never really been, nobody had been able to do that before mm -hmm. beyond a few years as, as it sort of, as the sun came to solar minimum, uh, predictions could be made on the basis of, of what the solar polar fields were doing that, that might give you an idea of how strong the following cycle was going to be, you know, the peak of the next cycle, maybe five years later, but trying to predict beyond that seemed to be beyond, uh, the possibilities and yet uh my my merry little band of, of investigators uh got together put some ideas together looking at the motion of the planets and how that seems to mirror changes in the sun's activity in the past uh and created a uh, an algorithm which would which would generate a model of future solar activity we published that in 2013 in in a, a journal called pattern recognition in physics, mm -hmm. um, which got shut down two weeks later by, uh, huh. by, but, uh, the behest of some IPCC scientists really? who, wrote, who wrote to the overarching publisher, uh, and, and complained, you know, that, that we were contradicting what the IPCC oh. was saying about increased, uh, rapidly increased warming, uh, and, and that, and that, so our journal didn't deserve to exist. And, and so. Uh, you know, it was, it was bombed, bombed from space and, uh, and obliterated. Uh, and so, you know, this is one example of, mm -hmm. of the way that science now operates instead of doing what it should do, which is confront our ideas with better ideas and say, we think you're wrong because, and, and having a proper scientific argument, uh, they simply censor things they don't like and right. sweep them, sweep them under the carpet. Now. You know, that's, uh, that's one example. Another example of chilling the debate that I've been through was uh, back in 2011, when on December the 14th, uh, I had uh, seven, uh, seven members of the police turn up at my door with a warrant to search my house and seize my computers. I mean, uh, uh, because they, you know, the, the excuse they were using was that they thought they might find something on one of my computers that might lead them to the identity of the, the person uh, or persons unknown who'd liberated uh, all, all the climate gate emails from the climate research unit at East Anglia. <laughs> and the real reason they did it was for intimidation. 
because uh, I'd, I'd been publishing some of the emails and passing comments on them, uh, particularly in relation to um, <clears throat> somebody who was not only a sort of leading light of the IPCCC, but, but worked uh, for the World Bank. And I was saying, you know, follow the money. Let's look okay. at what's really going on here. Hmm. And, and obviously that high up person didn't, didn't like that criticism. And I think that led directly to, to the police raid on my home uh, via a, a UK minister really? uh, in the government at the time, yeah, who, who obtained or got, got the judge to, to give the police a, a warrant. And now the, the amusing part of that story is it, it wasn't me who ended up in prison. It was that minister. Uh -huh, okay. <laughs> but, That's great. Um, you know, just, uh, instant karma. But, um, but you know, the, there are uh, serious issues with um, the censorship, the, the one-sidedness. Mm -hmm. The BBC, for example, you know, supposedly a paragon of unbiased broadcasting. Um, it, back in 2005, they, they, uh, they convened a meeting of, of so-called climate experts who decided that there was no need to listen to the climate skeptics anymore or, or give them any kind of uh, platform for debate. Um, because the science was settled. And it turned out that when, when they were asked for a list of, of those climate experts, the BBC refused to provide the list. Uh. And this, this was taken to the information commissioner uh, by a guy called Tony, what was Tony's second name? I can't remember at the moment. And it, he, he made a, a freedom of information request to get these names. It was refused. The BBC would hand over the names. But then, um, but then one, one of our uh, community of climate skeptics poking around on archive.org managed to find the original PDF that the BBC had produced that had all the names on. Oh, nice. And what, what we discovered was that these so-called climate experts who decided that there was no need for a balanced debate anymore were, in fact, interested parties from uh -huh. campaigning organizations such as the WWF, Greenpeace, uh -huh. uh, and et cetera. Uh -huh. And so, you know, this raises the question of, of who's really making policy and why are governments giving money to these kind of organizations to lobby them to get the outcome that they actually want right. against the interests of the population who elected them and who they're supposed to be serving. Uh, you know, these are really big society questions that, yeah. that need to be talked about. And there are other people probably more, more able to talk about them than I am, you know, so I have, I have, I keep trying to go back to the science back to the things that really interest me. And what I love about science is um, if you find something in the data that you can show to be true, then it doesn't matter what kind of arguments people bring to bear. It doesn't matter if they sweep it under the carpet. Yes. That truth, that truth will still be there in years to come. Mm -hmm. We rediscovered yeah. and thought about hopefully at a time when, uh, when there's, there's less um, contention, when there's less censorship. And, and so you are actually making some kind of contribution to science that, that could potentially lead, lead to better outcomes for everybody in the future. So that's, you know, that's who I am and what I'm about. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and I'm always prepared to defend what I believe in. And, and I believe that science has to be done properly. I believe that mm -hmm. people deserve better from their elected representatives yeah. mm -hmm. and, and that this, uh, is something that we shall carry on making a big noise about my friend, you and I, mm -hmm. uh, 
through every media that we can, uh, because it's so important for the well-being of our fellow citizens and, and for everybody. So uh, who are some of your favorite scientists when it comes to looking at the solar effect on Earth's climate? Do you have uh, anybody you could name or uh, like Willie Soon maybe? Or? Uh, yeah. Certainly, certainly uh, Willie yeah. Soon. Willie yeah. Soon. Uh, I, I, was, I was very interested in a paper last year that was published by a German scientist, Fritz Varenholtz. Okay. Uh, and, and Fritz, um, you know, is very meticulous in the way that he, he does his work. He downloaded all the data from the Ceres satellite. Um, okay. He showed that, that actually there'd been uh, a reduction in the amount of solar shortwave being reflected back into space off the cloud tops, which meant there's less cloud. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about more of the sunshine reaching the surface being the real cause of the warming rather than the increase in carbon dioxide. Because at the same time, the supposed heat trapping effect of the increase in carbon dioxide was actually allowing more long wave radiation back yeah. out into space rather than less. Now the, the other side tried to explain this away and say, oh, well, that's because the surface has got warmer. So of course there's more long wave radiation okay. going out. Yeah. But my question is, well, why isn't, why isn't it getting trapped? You know, so what's the limit on this trapping? And they don't seem to want to go into that very closely. And, and, and they try, instead, they try to say, oh, yeah, yeah, well, we already knew about this um, reduction in cloud causing more solar radiation on the surface, making things warmer. But that's just a feedback to the increased carbon dioxide. Now, yeah. as I say, there, there are things wrong with that. that. Uh, for one, cause and effect is wrong because you get more sunshine first and then increase temperature about three to seven months later. Okay. So it's pretty clear which is causing which, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and the other thing is that the way they say, oh, our models already predicted this. Yes, that's true. But only by having uh, the models creating this, what they call the, the mid-tropospheric hotspot, uh, which, wow. which was supposed to be causing the, the global warming down at the surface. But when they actually went and measured it, looked for it, they couldn't find it. They could only find a very, very slight gradient in the order of, you know, hundreds of a degree. Uh, which they then color coded in, in the diagrams in the IPCC report, blood red, oh, there you go. Uh, to make it, to make it look like there'd been huge warming in the mid troposphere when in fact the hadn't. So, you know, we're being gaslighted. We're being told yes. yeah. that we're being told that, um, that their theory explains all of this and, and that it's the carbon dioxide that's causing all the warming. Uh, but the data says otherwise, and it's not just that satellite data. And if you'll permit me, I'll just go through a couple of the other lines of evidence, which confirm the same thing about the reduction in cloud. Sure. So we've also from the, from the early seventies got, um, the international satellite cloud climatology project. It's a bit okay. of a mouthful. So it's abbreviated to, to the, to an acronym, the ISCCP data. Okay. And, and that also confirms that there was less low level cloud, particularly near the tropics, um, after 1980. Then we've got a thing called the Earthshine Project, which measures the amount of light reflected from the Earth off the cloud tops onto the moon. And we can tell by the change in intensity of, of the light on the moon uh, what the cloud albedo is doing. And that also confirmed that there was a drop in the amount of cloud after 1990. And, uh, and so that, those two coupled together with the, the Ceres data and also um, very simple, ordinary sunshine hour counts okay. done in, done in China, done in the UK, um, 
all showed the same thing, that, that more sunlight was getting through to the surface of the earth at the same time, and then followed by more warming. So okay. this, this is the reality. This is the climate reality uh, that they don't want to talk about. And we have to make a big noise about this because while they can't tax the clouds for not being there or the sun for being a bit stronger than usual, they can tax people for emitting carbon dioxide yeah. and are doing mm -hmm. and, and use it as an excuse to restrict our life's lifestyles, yes. make our homes colder in winter, mm -hmm. make us eat crickets instead of tasty, uh, yes. tasty morsels. Yes. Um, and, and people should be quite rightly outraged about this and, and throwing these people out of government at the next available opportunity at the ballot box. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so, you know, I, I think that that's really some sums it up really for our discussion, uh, that, that we have to have scientific truth. We have to have open debate and we have to have a correction in the way that policy has been formulated and is now being applied, uh, not just in one country, but many countries across the world. Mm -hmm. Um, of course there are some countries that aren't really going along with this, notably China, India, yes. Brazil, um, Russia. Uh, and these, these people are going to, in fact, derive quite a big, uh, commercial advantage from all of this. And, mm -hmm. and we'll probably, uh, start to over, overtake the West in some ways in, yeah. in terms of the standards of living of, of the people who live in those countries. And since they're not, uh, hurrying to reduce carbon emissions, the question arises, why, why would we, uh, particularly in the UK, where we emit about one hundredth of, of the, of the global emissions. You know, even if we were to destroy our economy and leave ourselves with nothing and walk around in sackcloth and ashes, huddling together for mutual bodily warmth in the winter, uh, we, we would make no difference at all to the, no measurable difference to the earth's surface temperature by going to those extreme lengths of, of cutting down mm -hmm. emissions. So we have to have some balance in this debate. We have to have some common sense and we have to keep talking about it and thank you you know, for inviting me here today to talk about it at great length. And I'm going to hand over to you for, for the final word. This is fantastic. Uh, very good. Uh, one thing that uh, gives me hope is I don't think voters anywhere are into the climate scam in terms of no one is eager to uh, give up their convenience or uh, freeze or pay higher prices for gas. Uh, I think people are, to a virtuous, virtuous signal, they'll say that they believe into it, in it, but when the rubber hits the road, they don't. And I don't think, like we've seen that in the U.S. as uh, gas prices got high here, all of a sudden Joe Biden was saying uh, that uh, refineries should do their patriotic duty and refine more oil. That's only the opposite of what he was saying before. Let's, uh, even, the New, even the New York Times recently, yeah. published a, recently published a survey where they found that only 1% of U.S. Yeah. Americans uh, thought, thought that the climate was a top priority. And amongst the, the under 30 year olds, it was only 3%. And amongst yeah. Democrat, uh, amongst Democrat voters, it was only 3% too. And it yeah. always comes, it always comes absolute bottom of the list of people. When people are asked to put these 16 major issues in order of priority, yes. yeah. it always comes at the bottom. Yeah. There's a reason for that. People aren't stupid. They, they know when they're being gaslit. They know when they're being led up the garden path. The problem we've got at the yeah. moment is all the major parties in all the major countries are signed up to this. And so to, to, uh, end this charade at the ballot box, uh, yeah. we're going to have to, we're going to have to form some new political parties. What, what will we call them, Tom? 
So yeah, the not the not zero party. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> not sure. But yeah, that makes me happy that uh, the people don't believe it. Even after decades of just this white hot propaganda, they still don't believe it. And I, I don't know, they can't turn the knob up to higher. It's, they've already turned the propaganda up to eleven. <laughs> yeah, no matter what, so we're not going to believe it. So I, yeah, 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 yeah. That that's right. And and particularly young school kids, they they see right through this stuff. You know, even though. We're now into the kind of second, third generation of kids who've been brought up with this propaganda. Yeah. They, they, they seem to see through it pretty easily when you talk to them and, uh, and have a healthy dose of natural skepticism as, as youngsters with freely inquiring minds. I think yeah. we've got more of a problem, honestly, with, with the sort of uh, middle-aged generation yes. uh, who, who tend to, who tend to be, you know, have become sober and responsible adults who've, who've watched the mainstream news way too much for way too many years. And, and have their heads, heads filled up with this, with half the story, you know, and, uh, and don't realize that there is another half to this story that, uh, that you and I and, and our other skeptic colleagues, uh, still carry on trying to get out there because if you see it as the truth, you've every right to speak it. Absolutely. All right. So this might be a pretty good stopping point. Do you think for this time, I'd love to have you back if you have more time uh, in the future and a couple love, more. Love to, Tom. Love to. Yeah. Thanks for asking me on today. It's been, it's been really great. And uh, thanks for letting me speak at length about this stuff. Okay. And then uh, is there anything else the listeners should know about where to find you? I'll put uh, the link to your blog in the show notes. Anything else? Uh, sure. Sure. Well, yeah. you know, also I'm, I'm on, I'm quite active on Twitter. Yeah. Same, same yeah. kind of handle at Rog Tallbloke. Okay. R-O-G which is a shortening of my first name, Roger. So okay. at Rog, at Rog Tallbloke on Twitter. Put that in, in the, uh, the notes under, okay. under, the, under the video as well, Tom, for me. Very good. And, uh, and thanks again. All right. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Bye. All right. Thanks now. Bye. Bye.